1: Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture podcast. I am, as always, very excited for another Midnight Myth episode. And you know, we usually have a pretty mapped out structure of where we're going and what we're doing and why, but the beauty of being an independent podcaster is sometimes you can feel a little penniless and you can fly by the seat of your pants. And after our Braveheart episode, which, by the way, the response to that episode has been tremendous.
0: Yeah, thank you all so much for engaging with us and sharing your thoughts. It was really awesome.
1: You know, when we know that we have certain hits that we can draw on that get big listens and lots of dialogues, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, Doctor Who, Anytime we do an episode that's even related to those subjects, the numbers are great. Um, MCU, Disney, all of these things just do really well. When we're like, you know, let's go to this movie in the 90s with a problematic writer and director that maybe some parts haven't aged well because of that and for other reasons, but it's one of my favorite all-time movies and I get to really talk history. You know, you just don't know how that episode's going to do. And it's been one of our most downloaded and commented on episodes. So thank you to everyone for vindicating that Braveheart was worth talking about. And based upon that, we wanted to do a sort of two-parter on historical fiction. So we did Braveheart, which is very much fiction first and history second. There's little to no actual history. We had a conversation about medieval history how it's written medieval romance literature and the implications that brave art has to tell us more about ourselves in the moment it came out than it does about the history and that conversation was very fruitful so we wanted to move to another piece of historical fiction one that we've mentioned we've talked about in broader episodes one that means a lot to us, but for various reasons, never felt like we were able to officially tackle. And that is the Broadway musical written by Lynn manuel Miranda, Hamilton, featuring the life of Alexander Hamilton. Now, a large part of the reason we never talked about it before was because unless you had seen it in the theater or listened to the soundtrack, you might have had some disconnection to it. But now that it's on Disney+, and they turned the play into a cinematic experience, we all have access to see Hamilton. So there's no excuse to have not seen Hamilton in one way or another. So now is the perfect time, springboarding off of Braveheart. We're going into Hamilton, which has a very different take on what historical fiction is and can be, and it's role in storytelling. And I gotta tell you, Laurel, I'm a little nervous on this one.
0: Yeah, I feel a little bit of nerves too. I feel uh, a lot of uh, responsibility to do justice to Hamilton, not just because it means so much to us personally, but because now that there is so much more access to it, uh, the the conversation, I think, has more weight. And the particular moment in which the Hamill film was released uh, was a very contemplative moment for Americans, especially, but I think people across the world uh, with regard to so many of the questions that Hamilton raises or uh, controversially does not raise. So uh, I feel a lot of pressure to do justice to it. Um, but I I am excited. I I think this has been a long time coming. This is something we were meant to do on the Midnight Myth podcast. And I'm really glad that we have the opportunity to do it.
1: And we're living in a time where the legacy of slavery in America and white supremacy in America and how slavery transitioned into Jim Crow and systemic racism. And the moment that we have right now where millions of Americans are raising their voices to challenge the systemic racism that does in fact exist in America despite what some American politicians will tell you that racism isn't an actual problem it is a problem in America and Hamilton tackles these issues in very interesting contemplative and you know unique ways in how American how Americans have told the story of America is very much under examination I'm getting way ahead of ourselves yeah let me let me slow it down let me back up. Um, before we get too busy, to one thing I just have to say, we got some really sad news out there for those of us who are fans of the MCU, who are fans of talented, young, up-and-coming, or I guess now once A-list actors in the, you know, unexpected to us passing of Chadwick Boseman, who is famous for a lot of roles, but most important to me is Black Panther in the MCU, and uh, just wanted to throw our sympathies out there to all of the fans, to the families. It was a very, very sad moment for all of us. And I just feel so fortunate to have been able to interact with this artist's work in my lifetime. And one of the most impactful artist actors of a generation was taken from us too soon yet again. And I want to celebrate Chadwick Boseman while mourning his passing.
0: Just such a bright light um, and someone who had so, so much talent and so much more to give and so much intelligence. And when you hear him speak about his craft, you really are in awe of just a really gifted actor. Um, And it really is a tragedy that we lost him to cancer, um, which is a horrible disease. And I will be putting something in the show notes about um, colon cancer awareness, as well as I kind of want to forfeit our plug today uh, of ourselves and our, our ways of supporting us uh, to just say we're also recording this in the wake. I can't believe, you know, a week ago when we were recording Braveheart, uh, things in Kenosha were not what they are now, <laughs> but we're recording this now in the wake of the horrible police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha uh, and then the tragedies that happened at the Uh, protests afterward, when uh, a a young man drove hundreds of miles to take out protesters in uh, a gruesome and vicious way. Um, And so uh, our show notes will also have some links to where you can um, offer support to the Milwaukee Freedom Fund, which I know is helping to bail out protesters in Kenosha and to also offer um, other kinds of monetary support uh, to those who are fighting the good fight, and also I'll include the GoFundMe for Jacob Blake's family. Uh, we are obviously still keeping him and his family in our thoughts uh, as we move forward and we continue to fight this fight. And as we continue to demand justice for people like Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade and Elijah, like there, there are just so many, um, so many injustices that we have not gotten any kind of closure on, and. Uh, That's just kind of what I want to take into this episode, just remembering that we have so, so much work to do.
1: Yeah, we're legitimately in a crisis point in America and so many other countries throughout the world are. And I know we have listeners in other parts of the world. Um, There are definitely there's definitely a reckoning happening and there's definitely uh, darkness casting a huge shadow over 2020. And the one thing that I'll say, I personally don't have the answers to these problems. I'm really good at what I do here at the podcast. I think I'm pretty good at my day job, but I I can't solve the world's problems. Um, You know, but I am here to listen and learn and to share the message of Midnight Myth. If we boil it down simply, what is the Midnight Myth really about? It is trying to encourage people to be kind. It's trying to encourage people to live bravely, to engage in art meaningfully, and to go on journeys of self-reflection. And this can happen on the micro level for individuals, and it can happen on the macro level for societies. And a crisis point in history is always going to be really hard to live through. It's always going to be painful and bloody and there's no guarantee of success at the end of that crisis. But there's one overarching lesson that Hamilton, the piece of historical fiction tells us, is you can take the reins and you can make your way out of it. Because dying is easy, young man. Living is harder. And we are all living through this now. And the only way we get through the, other, the to the other side better, more peaceful, more prosperous, is if we do it together and we do it with kindness.
0: Yeah, we get through the hurricane.
1: All right, let's talk Hamilton. Yeah. (laughs) All right, I'm really excited to talk Hamilton. Uh, We'll do a very, very brief, uh, briefest of brief recaps here.
0: A brief history of American history.
1: Hamilton is the play written and directed by Lin Mel, I'm sorry, written, performed by Lin Manuel Miranda, that is a smash hit phenomenon, one of the biggest pop culture moments um, of my lifetime. It is huge, and it features the autobiography of Alexander Hamilton from coming to New York and then rising through the military ranks in the Revolutionary War, then to becoming the first Treasury Secretary, and ultimately succumbing and dying in a duel with his frenemy, Aaron Burr, who shoots him and kills him. The story is a story of America written by Lin-Manuel Miranda and almost predominantly minority cast. It tells the story of Alexander Hamilton through music and in particular, the music of hip hop. It tells this American story in a way that no words can truly describe. No one can recap No one can discuss really what Hamilton is without seeing it first. Laurel and I are lucky that we have seen the play. Um, Let's just tell quickly the story of Hamilton and us.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good idea.
1: When, so when Laurel and I first started meeting, this is going to be little personal, personal anecdotes. I was living in an apartment and I had gotten uh, two new roommates and they were a couple. Individually fantastic people. Together, they were a little toxic. They just couldn't find a harmonious balance. So on my days off, and then they moved in and in summer, they would tend to be fighting. So I would sit at home on my day off, kind of wanting to relax, and then I'd have these roommates fighting. So I would just leave the house, and this is before I met Laurel. And I lived in Philadelphia right around what's called an area of the city called Old City. Old City has things like Independence Hall. It has things like the Liberty Bell, It is one of the most architecturally beautiful and historically significant eras of America in general, and in particular, Philadelphia. So I would go walking around and reading the plaques that were all there. Now, we all know Derek as a history guy, but I had studied ancient history predominantly, a little bit of medieval, and some other eras when I went to school. I didn't study a lot of American history, so, as I'm walking around investigating Independence Hall, finding out that the tours are free and just going and touring it maybe you know once every other month, I started being really interested in American history. So, I started reading all of these different American history books, trying to get my head around the revolutionary period. What really happened then? What are historians saying? Kind of trying to demystify the way that American history is often taught mythically in this country. And then I met Laurel, and we started dating. And Laurel is a theater geek through and through. And she was like, you like American history? You have to listen to this hip-hop musical about Alexander Hamilton. And I will tell you, folks, I was very skeptical
0: Everybody was when they heard a hip hop musical about America's first treasury secretary, Alexander Hamilton.
1: I was like, there's zero chance that's actually compelling. So we went on a trip to Baton Rouge, Louisiana to visit her grandfather on his birthday. And on the plane, I listened to Hamilton and it blew me away. And like many of us, I listened to Hamilton obsessively. So this coincided with meeting my, at the time, girlfriend, then reading American history on my own and then listening to this amazing hip hop musical that did unusually great justice to our actual history, who taught our history in a new fun and different way and reinvigorated American history for a new generation and different audiences who have often been precluded based upon their status as racial or ethnic minorities. And Laurel and I's relationship was going really well. We wanted to see Hamilton. This was really important to us. So Hamilton, at the time, still is, I imagine, really hard to get tickets to. So Laurel stays up all night.
0: This is after the Tony Awards. So I knew that uh, right after the Tony Awards aired that year, they were going to release a new block of tickets for the following year for Hamilton. And it was gonna be like January through August or something like that. Um, And it was June at this point. So I stayed up through the entire like seven hour Tony ceremony uh, and opened up every single Apple device, every single computer, phone, iPad that I had at the time and was logged into Ticketmaster waiting for them to go on sale. Uh, And Derek had already gone to bed because it was a Sunday night And I just sat there and refreshed and refreshed and refreshed until I got tickets for May 11th,
1: which happens to be my birthday.
0: Yeah. The following year, I bought them a year in advance. All
1: right. So now we have tickets to Hamilton. We go and we see Hamilton and we see it on Broadway and it's my birthday. And We go out to dinner and we're just having the most amazing time. So we go back to the hotel afterwards and I'm like, Hey, Let's go up to the roof of the hotel. It has a roof deck. Let me bring this bottle of champagne we had on ice. And let's go out and split some champagne. We go up to the roof deck. And I propose to Laurel.
0: You guys didn't know you were getting our proposal story today, did you? <laughs> and then
1: I asked her, I went down to one knee and said, would you be my best of wives and best of women? And the rest is history. We're now married.
0: I said yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that we, uh, we shared that little story. So Hamilton has a very personal uh, connection to both of us. It, it, it's meaningful to us on so many levels, not just that we love history and theater, but also that uh, it's this huge milestone in our relationship and in our lives. Uh, so that's part of why it's so uh, significant to us to be talking about it with you today. And I hope you uh, appreciated our uh, our little dive into our personal lives there.
1: Absolutely. And yeah, that's the briefest of brief recaps. That's
0: the recap of Hamilton.
1: <laughs> All right. So where do you want to begin here in analysis? I've hinted on a few areas I want to go, but let's open this up to you, Laurel. How would you like to continue and really start our Midnight Myth treatment of Hamilton?
0: Uh, You know, because we don't often talk about things in the theatrical medium, we do it occasionally, but it's rare for us. We're usually talking about movies and TV. I kind of want to start with the medium itself uh, and why uh, Hamilton works as a theatrical piece, why it's important that Hamilton is a piece of theater. Um, It obviously owes a massive debt to a lot of other musicals, particularly 1776 and Les Miserables, but plenty of musicals. There are Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, lyrics quoted in it. There are Jason Robert Brown uh, lyrics quoted in it.
1: Just because I don't know how savvy theater-wise yeah. our audience are. Who are those two individuals?
0: Rodgers and Hammerstein are like the golden age. They uh, composed Oklahoma and Cinderella and just every like popular 1940s musical you can think of is Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, and then Jason Robert Brown is a really um, popular contemporary uh, musical composer of the last five years and um, Parade and so on. Um, But yeah, so there's lots of contemporary musical theater references in it, but I do think that the enduring and most significant and profound influence on Hamilton uh, from both an artistic level and a historical level is none other than the bard himself, William Shakespeare. Um, So I'm excited to get to talk about Shakespeare again, because I think um, Lin-Manuel is a near Shakespeare-level genius, near Shakespeare-level talent living among us today. Um, And there are some explicit references to Shakespeare within Hamilton. But as we zoom out and ask the wider question about uh, history being represented through drama, there's no better way to do that than to go back to the source, to go back to the guy who shaped so much of history.
1: Totally agree.
0: So uh, some of the explicit references, one thing that I've always felt about Hamilton is that the characters of Hamilton and Aaron Burr are very much analogs of Macbeth and Hamlet, two of Shakespeare's most popular tragedies. Hamilton is, of course, perceived as ambitious, as uh, cunning and always trying to rise to the top, being nonstop, if you will, and he even uh, directly notes in the second act that people perceive him as Macbeth, as foolishly ambitious. Meanwhile, Aaron Burr, the character who always wants to wait for it, who will sit here and see which way the wind will blow, is very much a Hamlet-esque figure. He's, uh, he's unable or unwilling to engage in politics when it's most important, uh, when he could be the most impactful and actually rise. And then once he is able to actually pull the trigger, so to speak, he regrets it immediately and kills someone that he would rather have left alive. So there are some very, um, very I think obvious parallels to the Shakespearean tragedies uh, in uh, in Hamilton, but I do think that one place to put our emphasis when we look at the parallels between Shakespeare and Hamilton are Shakespeare's histories. So if you're not aware, Shakespeare during the late 16th century, right around the like last decade of the 16th century. Shakespeare wrote a series of plays about English history, and these were primarily focused around the kings and aristocrats of the late 15th century uh, during the Wars of the Roses. So these plays include the three Henry VI plays, Richard II, Richard III, the Henry IV plays, Henry V. There's even King John, Edward III, Henry VIII, and a number of Roman history plays. But the English histories are all named after the king in power during the period that's being examined. So even if that king isn't necessarily the focal character of the play, it's named after him. So the Henry IV plays Henry V, the son of the king, is actually the main character. Henry IV, I think those two plays are an interesting set to bring up because along with Richard III, these were the most popular Shakespeare plays during their time. And I'm talking they were mega hits like these were these were plays that appealed to everybody, and everybody wanted to go see them. They were Hamilton level popular. And where today Hamlet is the best known Shakespeare play, and the tragedies are usually held up as the most popular and they're the most produced, most translated. Um, they're not necessarily as well received as the histories in Shakespeare's time. And part of this has to do with the spectacle of it all. They were war plays, so there was all of this like, blood and guts and gore and action on stage, but also, people were seeing a spotlight shone on these familiar figures, and it was helping to shape a national narrative, a national character. He's working primarily from a like somewhat questionable historical source, uh, the Holland Shed Chronicles of England, Scotland, and Ireland, But he's also, in addition to trying to tell the history, he's creating entertainment. He's trying to uh, amuse people. So he's, of course, omitting historical events, expanding historical events, and inserting invented events to write compelling stories. And he's at the mercy of a, a good bit of censorship from the Master of Revels, and he's often writing for the pleasure of Queen Elizabeth I. So there's a political factor to the overarching story, if you string them together, you get this sort of Marvel cinematic universe of English history. Um, And it's an entire series of wars and events that lead to the inevitable and heroic landing of the Tudors on the English throne. So essentially, if you look at all of this, it's like the Tudors come in and save the day and they, they lead to the great Elizabeth I. But these plays have significantly shaped popular perceptions of English history when we think of Richard III, we think of Shakespeare's depiction of him. We think he's hunchbacked, depraved, and a wicked usurper of the throne who killed two little boys, when in fact there's some evidence to the contrary, and there's a lot of historians who are currently trying to redeem his historical reputation. And then when we think of Henry V, we think of a superhero We think of like this great valiant king who gave the St. Crispin's Day speech, who said, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. um, When in fact, contemporary historians think he was kind of a war criminal. So there is definitely uh, an, there's an aspect of Shakespeare's plays that have become subsumed by history or have become conflated with history. And I think that's an interesting thing to turn our eye to when we look at Hamilton and how we uh how we continue to read american history is there a threat of this you know taking over our perceptions of history or is this challenging us to interrogate it further you're asking me i think it's a question we should uh we should take into our conversation because the history of history in drama uh starts not starts with but very much uh, has its, its deepest roots in Shakespeare. And like, we think Shakespeare is history,
1: right? There's a long tradition in Western theater, in the ancient medieval world, to be an apparatus of the state, to propagate a particular message and to spread a narrative that is beneficial to those in power. That is nothing new. Um, Shakespeare didn't invent that. Of course. And I think one of the things that's interesting in your kind of synopsis of his plays and his history and the setting and the time, so thank you for that, is that he is ultimately creating a, a set of plays favorable to the queen. Yeah, yeah. He is doing it with the queen's blessing and it is to support and to generate... Um, love, admiration, and the idea that history is predestined, that there is a certain uh, element of human affairs not on, in the control of the individuals in history, but in control under some sort of divine being, whether it be God or the fates, depending upon what you know, Shakespeare play you're reading, that will lead to an inevitable outcome. And the histories shape us to Queen Elizabeth, yeah, and in this respect, though his Shakespeare was clearly interested in actual history, he a historicalizes i don't think that's a word he rips the actual historical veracity from his plays in order to make them a in part a wing of the state, why they endure is because they're just also beautifully well-written. Yeah,
0: he was a genius. Uh, and and I do think he was involved in shaping and defining a national character. Uh, and it's really interesting to look at it in comparison to, to Hamilton because we have an English history versus an American history. And I don't know if you guys know, but we fought a pretty bloody war to not be part of England anymore. So you might look at Shakespeare's plays and say, okay, the national character that this is trying to shape is enforcing that strong leadership is the most important factor in a healthy nation. And there have been strong leaders and there have been weak leaders, but a strong leader is is going to lead to a healthy and prosperous nation. And we should think twice about rebelling against those leaders and valuing a national unity across the cultures of England, Scotland, Wales. Those are all, I think, elements and themes of the national character that is defined by Shakespeare's histories. Whereas Hamilton is very much like pro rebellion, of course, and pro like fighting for your particular principles, but also pro compromise and pro uh, uh, questioning legacies. I think uh, there, there's some interesting comparisons.
1: Well, there's a huge um, philosophical difference between the Shakespearean histories and the Hamilton as yeah, a yeah. historical document. It's most clearly articulated in the song, I forget the name of the song, but when Washington says, and I'll quote, you know, let me tell you what I wish I knew when I was young and full of glory. Yeah. You have no control over who lives, who dies, who tells your story.
0: Yeah, that's history has its eyes on you, yeah.
1: And in so unpacking that quote and what's happening there and George Washington himself saying it is something I'd like to talk a little bit about in response to, Shakespeare's legacy of dramatic history on stage. That quote, is one, it's George Washington giving advice to Hamilton. Hamilton has been the um, essentially the secretary of George Washington, who is the supreme commander of the Revolutionary War Forces. And he has been fighting Hamilton, that is, to gain his own command, because he realizes if he commands troops, that will better suit him if he is a victorious captain yeah. in the army in the post-war war world, that it could help advance his station. So he finally gets his wish, and he's been given a command before the Battle of Yorktown. Now, these things actually happened, and somewhat in the way that Hamilton describes them. The Battle of Yorktown is an actual real event It was the decisive winning battle that defeated the British and gave America its own country. The British retreated after they lost the Battle of Yorktown. Hamilton talks about it and that how he sneaks into the battle. He pulls the flint and musket bolts and has his troops fight hand-to-hand combat with the British. 100% true. 100%. That's what he did. He led a sneak attack. And he didn't want a stray gunshot to give away their position and had his men fight like medieval warriors. Like these, all these things happened, but what we don't know if happened is if Washington ever said, you know, who lives, who dies, who tells your story to Hamilton. Um, Now, why that's significant from the playwright perspective? George Washington is continually taught in American history In almost a saint-like way, in particular in elementary school and high school.
0: The cherry tree.
1: Once you get to college, they start to, if you study history, they start to demystify George Washington. We are introduced to by George Washington in this at the Battle of New York. That's when we first see him in the play. And after the Battle of Kipps Bay, a smaller battle in the Battle of New York, George Washington screams when his troops revolt, or, I'm sorry, retreat at the sight of the British, are these the men with which I am to defend America? Direct quote from George Washington, actually happened. And he divides his forces, considered one of the greatest military blunders of the entire Revolutionary War. And George Washington retreats from New York with his tail between his legs. And many thought the war was over. There are generals and people in Congress who doubted his ability to command. All of these are expressed in the play. These things actually happened. Back to my original point as I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole.
0: It happens.
1: Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? George Washington is demystified in the way that he is discussed and portrayed. He loses battles, he makes mistakes, and he ultimately tells Hamilton, we don't know the outcome the outcome of this a battle of this event is not predestined it's not written in stone that george washington will lead the troops to victory in yorktown he says i know we can win but he doesn't he believes that they can win he believes that there's greatness in this army but no general walking into a battle is ever certain of success it is always a coin flip whether or not this is successful or not. And then who tells your story is relinquishing control of history to the next generation. This seems obvious, but it must be stated. Nobody knows who's going to write the history of now because the conclusion of these events that we're living through are not predestined. In this respect, it tells a vision of history that is much more like how actual historians engage with the past. It's not predestined. A historian must ask, what happened to cause this event? When this event happened, what were the consequences of this event? And how did the consequence of that event lead to the next event? Ultimately trying to understand how we got to here in the present. And this play acknowledges more truthfully than any other work of historical fiction known to me that the actors, the actual actors in the play are admitting we have no control over this. We have no control. This theme is echoed again throughout the play when after Hamilton's death, the character Eliza, um, I'm sorry, not Eliza, Angelica, says every other founding father story gets told. We live in a world where, yes, Hamilton's face is on the $10 bill. Yes, most of us know that he died in a duel. But most of us don't understand that he shaped the very economy.
0: Don't know that he was an immigrant.
1: Yeah. Didn't know that he was an immigrant. You know, didn't know that he was a daring commander. Or didn't that he know, was
0: the right-hand man of Washington. Yeah.
1: Didn't know that he was, you know, um, unfaithful to his wife on several occasions. And so his story doesn't get told. And do you think Hamilton would have guessed that a Porter, a son of a Puerto Rican immigrant would tell his story better than anyone else?
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Through, through the language of hip hop too. I'm appreciating this um, dichotomy that you're drawing between the uh, Shakespeare's histories as depicting history as an inevitability Um, leading to a particular outcome, leading to a particular triumph for the country, whereas uh, Hamilton and the sort of contemporary uh, style of history that is being portrayed in Hamilton is very much an open question. It is concerned with questions of, uh, you know, how does the past influence the present and where do we go from here? Uh, It is really asking a lot of questions about the future. And I think that... uh, you know that question: Who lives? Who dies? Who tells your story? Is directed as much at the character of Alexander Hamilton as it is uh, at us. Um, you know, we we look at this show, we look at this play, and we say, "Okay, the lights went up and they started rapping." So I know already that I'm not watching a like true to life, realistic depiction of history. I'm watching a uh, translation of it uh, into what today is most like the language uh, of the bard, right? I'm listening to it through the language of hip hop, which is very much a stylized, poetic, and artistic form interpreting history. So I can't mistake it for history because I also have uh, predominantly minorities in these roles that that were white supremacists. Uh, of the past that were slave owners of the past. So already I'm I'm being asked to question what I'm seeing. I'm being asked to question history. Uh and then I'm I'm challenged to say okay, what really happened and what does this mean about America now? What does this mean about uh what how much the country has changed, what we look like now, and what we can look like in the future. And I think in contrast to you know Braveheart, which does not encourage you to question the history, it does not encourage you to engage critically with the history, it's just trying to tell you a good story that's loosely based on a historically compelling figure, this one is directly saying, you need to go back to your histories and look at the stories that were left out. So Hamilton's story is primarily left out of our grade school education. We know that he died in a duel, right? We know these very basic things about him, but we don't know what he did for America or what the people around him did for America. Um, and we also don't learn the really ugly sides of a lot of our founding fathers until it's too late to demythologize them. And that's how you know we cling to these figures of the past who are Intensely problematic and have difficulty accepting progress and change when it feels like it's an affront to those mythological founding fathers. So, yeah, this play is saying: look at your history, look whose voices have been left out, look who uh, you know we need to elevate in the future,
1: and look at a historical and fictional document that proudly proclaims American history cannot be separated from history of minorities, of immigrants, of immigrants, yeah, of women. And it says, let's feature those that have been left out in history and let's use as the muses, as the artists, as the bards to sing the songs of the past. Let's use a contemporary musical style and let's use people that would have been not even allowed to participate in the actual formation of this country to tell a version of this country you know americans generally speaking like to consider ourselves and our narrative as exceptional and there's a narrative called american exceptionalism and that that narrative of american exceptionalism that americans predominantly have adopted as yeah we're exceptional started as a slur started as an insult it came out of russian propaganda these Americans who think they're so exceptional, what kind of a jerk walks around and calls themselves exceptional? And Americans are like, yep, we did. Yeah, we're the greatest
0: country in the world, yeah.
1: If there's any way in which America is actually exceptional, it's that you can take the story of America, a narrative that is loosely based on history, but can be mythologized, and that is I myself and I myself alone control my destiny. It is not where I was born. It was not who I was born to. It is not the color of my skin. It is not my sexual orientation. In the you know, late 18th century, it was simply I myself can control my destiny if I'm a white landowning man. Yeah. And that was revolutionary at that time. That people died for that, but that's all it was. But because that story existed that I myself can control my destiny. It's called self-determinative liberalism. The narrative of self-determinative liberalism that can lead to prosperity has allowed America generationally over time to open up who can control their destiny. And that has sent ripples through the planet, legitimate historical ripples where you can only be a truly great and peaceful and prosperous society if you encourage your individuals to self-determine, if you let your, your citizens decide who they want to be, who they want to represent them in politics, and how they want to live their life. That is one of the most politically amazing events of all human history. And in that way, it's truly exceptional. Now we live in this crisis moment and we ask ourselves, Are we that exceptional? Are we even all that different from the authoritarians out there? And what Hamilton tells us, it's like, we can be, you know, like we absolutely can be. If they did it imperfectly and with lots of riddles and problems, we can still do that today too. It's, and as Washington tells Hamilton time and time again, it's a lot harder to do. It's a lot easier to pick up the muskets and march to war. It's a lot harder governing to a connect consensus in a free society and making it more prosperous for the next generation. You know, factionalism, us versus them, political parties, people having political disputes so bad that they want to kill each other in this. The two main characters actually do that. We are living in a time now with factionalism with political division, with people wanting to kill each other because they politically disagree. These problems are not new to our era, right? These problems are problems America has always faced. And these are problems that I do think a meaningful investigation into the text of the play Hamilton teaches us that we're planting seeds in a garden that we don't get to see.
0: Yeah. So I was just going to bring this up. I was, I was going to say, I think one of the strongest pieces of Hamilton is that it articulates that exceptional story, that amazing, incredible story uh, that I can control my own destiny, that that's the myth of America. It articulates that as an unfinished story. Uh, when Hamilton is facing down the bullet that will end his life, he says, uh, what is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. And then he calls America a great unfinished symphony. And yes, it's unfinished when he dies, but it's unfinished today. Like it, it will never be finished. And that's the idea is that we keep working on it. And I think the, um, the, the strength of Hamilton there is in uh, challenging those who think that the American story was already completed in the 1950s and that it has deteriorated since then. And instead saying, no, 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 we're still working on it. We're still telling it. It's a relay race. We are passing it on to the next generation to try and keep getting closer to everyone being able to determine their own destiny. Uh, But we have to keep working on it and we have to trust that the next generation will keep working on it because we won't get to see it.
1: And there are always going to be those seeking power who are going to say, let us just retreat to the lessons of the past and stay there, who will hold back progress. I'll give a specific example because, you know, people hearkening for the 1950s America and saying, that's when we were really great back then. That's nothing new to America. Right. I've been engaged in a fun historical project where I'm reading every single president's inaugural address. The first president in the post-revolutionary war generation was James Monroe. Every president up to then was directly linked to the American Revolution, whether they either fought in it or intellectually helped frame it or at the Constitutional Convention, at the Declaration of Independence, or all of the above. And James Monroe was the first in the next generation. And he outlined in his first inaugural address a platform of making sure we just preserve what these great revolutionary heroes gave us. He argued for conservatism, the idea that the ideas of the past are the good ideas. Our job in the present is to maintain them, augment what needs to be augmented, but don't do anything fundamentally too different because I'm taking the reins from these geniuses in the past. Arguing for the past era, that was the great era, and let's just preserve it, yeah. maintain it. And we live in a world now where we have rhetoric of like, hey, we've changed way too much. There's way too much change. We don't even recognize this world that we live in now. It's overwhelming. Let's just roll back to the clock. Let's preserve what worked then, and let's just you know, fight the seeds of change. Those political forces in America have always been there and they've always had a seat at the table and sometimes they've been the very table itself. Yeah. And I've been dictating policy. So the question of Hamilton, of this revolutionary war fighter, of this immigrant, of this headstrong, I'm gonna write my way into power and I'm going to die way too young that sort of tragedy of Hamilton, the lesson that, you know, I think Hamilton teaches us is keep fighting. You know, you've got to keep plowing forward. You can't give up. Sometimes that means endorsing your enemy, right? So let us think of how partisan our world is today and consider that in the election of 1800, Hamilton did everything in his power to help Thomas Jefferson get elected, knowing that Thomas Jefferson stood against everything Hamilton politically believed in. So the political feud that started in the revolutionary cabinet that came to define a lot of American politics was the feud between federalism and democratic republicanism. And this is discussed at length in that, and it is, it does do some great historical justice, Because George Washington and Alexander Hamilton spent the Revolutionary War fighting in the army, they saw the dysfunction of the Continental Congress firsthand. It struggled to give supplies, money, food, munitions to the army, led many to believe when America was formed, it needed a strong executive center that could manage things like crises like wars. Then there was the faction that believed that most of the authority should come from Congress. Congress, albeit messy um, and slower to act, is better than having a strong federal government because the strong, strong federal executive branch... Because the executive can seize the reins of power and become king
0: exactly exactly what the uh, you know early Americans were trying to fight against monarchy was a threat posed by the Federalists
1: not only monarchy but hereditary nobility yeah, yeah the idea that there can be a ruling class that passes their power from generation to generation was the very thing America was trying to undo in America. And so if there is a strong executive, if there's a strong federal government, there's a risk of that happening. And then summarily, the Democratic Republicans were like, states should be highly autonomous in how they wield their authority so that they can address their regional affairs and not have to succumb to a potential um, capital that could slip into authoritarianism. It was the original states' rights Versus federal rights. Exactly, Yeah. This battle over who holds more authority, the states or the federal government, exists and goes on today um, and started at that time. Now, Thomas Jefferson argued very eloquently against the authority of the federal government and wanting to in favor states' rights, whereas Alexander Hamilton wanted to concentrate power and authority in a strong federal government with a strong, heavily, heavily powered president. And you want to talk about some political turmoil. The election of 1800 ended without anyone having an electoral majority to be president. The two top candidates were Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson. And Alexander Hamilton used all of his influence and authority to help Thomas Jefferson get elected a man who stood polar opposite in political authority. And he does so articulated in the play because he thought Burr would be bad for the country. He didn't agree with Jefferson, but he thought Jefferson was at least principled and would govern with principles, whereas Burr was someone that he had seen vacillating politically who wanted power just for power's sake. Imagine today that happening. Well, what do we see now? I know this ruffled a lot of feathers, but there was a Democratic convention that just happened in which Democrats and Republicans were supporting—Republicans uh, were supporting Democrats who don't agree with them with anything because they disagree with the re-election of the current President Donald Trump because they think he doesn't actually have any real political beliefs. We're seeing that playing out right now before our eyes. The thing is, is a lot of people will say that history is cyclical and it's a common refrain. If you don't learn from history, it's doomed to repeat itself. It's kind of an absurd statement. No two event has ever repeated. Every single event is unique into itself. And humans have a desire to see patterns in things because it helps us organize the world into an effective epistemology. So we say, if we can recognize patterns, we can understand and predict events better. Right. And this works really well. And in this respect, we are seeing similar debates that started at the foundation of this country happening today. And the question that we have is what can we actually learn from them? What can we actually gain from them? And the overriding moral that I get from Hamilton is that the world is wide enough. It's that we don't have to actually kill each other. We can coexist even if we disagree. There are going to be power-hungry demagogues. They're gonna win political battles. It's up to us to fight those political battles and not have them turn into duels to the death, to not have them turned into shooting each other into the streets, to not have us devolve into another civil war. It's the world is wide enough
0: for both Hamilton and me. You know, one of the things I think is handled so artfully uh, that illustrates this point within the show uh, are the interpersonal relationships between these political figures, between these founding fathers. So, like, the, the relationship between Burr and Hamilton is so deeply compelling. And just the choice to have Burr be the primary narrator for this story is a really fascinating light to shine on another mostly forgotten figure from history. Uh, just like Burr says, now I'm the villain in your history. Uh, you know, he's only really remembered for shooting Hamilton in a duel and actually has a really compelling past and is a really interesting historical figure. Uh, so th- their relationship is quite beautiful as uh rivals, friends, uh, allies, companions, members of the same party, then members of warring parties uh, who politics really tear apart. But then I think the relationship between Hamilton and Jefferson is articulated so beautifully. Uh, There is a wonderful moment where they're talking, it's in the room where it happened, uh, when they're talking about this great compromise that was struck where uh, Hamilton got the banks in New York City uh, and got his debt plan through by giving the Virginians the nation's capital. And Hamilton says, hate the sin, love the sinner. Uh, So there's this moment of um, incredible complexity in that relationship that's like, yeah, actually, I don't personally hate Jefferson. I respect him and I see that he can offer me something and that we can actually work together, uh, I just fundamentally disagree with him as a political uh, figure.
1: Totally agree. Can I read a quote digging out the archives here of Derek Quotes?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And this is to illustrate, uh, I'll read the quote first. How little power power and fortune has compared with human nature. Let me start over, I brutalized that how little power and fortune has compared with human nature. How could fortune fulfill a person's desire when all the wide open spaces of such a huge empire could not satisfy two men? Although they had heard and had read that the gods, quote, divided everything into three parts, and each received his portion of honor, end quote, the two of them were not satisfied with the Roman Empire."
0: That's uh, Caesar and Pompey, right?
1: This is from Plutarch, the great Roman biographer and Greek biographer under Roman lives. This is from his Lives of Pompey, Pompey, also known as Pompey Magnus, which is Pompey the Great. And this is about Caesar and Pompey not able to share power, driving Rome into a civil war, which ultimately leads to Caesar proclaiming himself dictator for life. And he draws this as human nature, Plutarch, and compares it to the gods who in ancient Roman religion, there would be Jupiter, um, there'd be Hades, and there'd be Neptune who divided the sky, the underworld, and the earth into three parts and they each could rule harmoniously. The gods could rule harmoniously, but human nature could not. And we see this again echoed through in the Way that Lin-Manuel Miranda interprets Hamilton and Burr, both incredibly powerful, incredibly successful, incredibly influential, who could not coexist despite having this wide empire, these 13 colonies in which they could coexist, and gripping themselves into mortal coil. And we see this happening now in our factionalism in current American 2020 politics, Where it's not enough to win, you have to destroy the other side. It's not enough to have power, the other side must be purged from society at all costs. This tile of zero-sum rhetoric, this way that human nature can be used to create these factions, to create this violence, is nothing new. What is new is how America has overcome it so many times in our history and whether or not we will or will not overcome it because we have no control who lives or dies and tells our story. There's no better piece of meaningful, actual historical fiction than Hamilton. And Let me qualify that. It engages in history in a very complex, nuanced, and brave way that no other piece of historical fiction quite does that I know of because as much as I love the the histories written by Shakespeare we have to be reminded that they're propagandistic as much as I love braveheart we have to be reminded that it's not about history as, at all this entire play is asking us to rethink and investigate our history to take new historical lenses to take different perspectives and to carry that legacy that was planted back in the 18th century, and to look at those plants and say, which need to be trimmed, which need to be pulled, and which need to be watered.
0: Amazing. You know, since you brought that quote in, I wanna do something similar, because, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, William Shakespeare has a very similar quote to the one that you just read, and to The World Was Wide Enough, in uh, Henry IV. And that quote is, "'Two stars keep not their motion in one sphere.'" Uh, And that's spoken by Prince Hal, the future King Henry V of Henry Percy, also known as Hotspur, who was once his family's ally, turned into a rebel and a bitter rival. And in the play, he kills him on the battlefield. He kills Hotspur on the battlefield. Uh, So once again, this story being told over and over about... Uh, greatness and great men who cannot coexist because their ideas are fundamentally incompatible, or because they are unsatisfied with the small portion of the pie they have been left. Uh, I think is is a really it's a really powerful story, and it is another one of those myths, uh, and it is another one of those things that looking at these three different examples of this in three very different historical contexts, uh, even in Hamilton is reminding me to say, okay, we need to look at those myths and stop poeticizing them and look at what's actually true, look at the actual complexities of it, rather than thinking of it as poetry.
1: I love it. So this was supposed to be the first segment. Yep. Shakespeare, Hamilton, and how theater can create history. Um, we've now gone on a long time. This is, yeah. There's a lot more we still need to get to with time. So I'd like to, if it's okay with you, do a transition. Absolutely. And I'm going to get to the big question. So the film Hamilton comes out on Disney Plus um, recently, I think it's been out.
0: In July. It was in July, July 3rd, yeah. So
1: it came out in July. Everybody watched it there is already then right out of the gate, a meaningful dialogue on how Hamilton, the play treated the peculiar institution of slavery. Yeah. And I think it's worth kind of touching into that debate here. And I have a lot of thoughts on it. And I'd like to caveat the thoughts that, you know, not being a minority, I can't tell, someone who is a descendant of a slave, how they should feel about how historical documents and historical fiction deals with slavery. So it's not my intention to you know, direct anyone. You need to feel the way you need to feel because your ancestors were in bondage. So it's not my place to tell anyone that they're right or wrong, but I do think it's worth asking the question. Do you think Lin-Manuel Miranda gets this aspect right do you think he gets it wrong? How do you think we should relate to the way Hamilton relates to slavery?
0: I think it's controversial. Um, I, I, you know, I think it's a really interesting question because uh, we obviously have depictions of uh, founding fathers of America like Jefferson and Washington in particular, who were notorious slaveholders. Jefferson, who had a a sexual relationship with one of his slaves, Sally Hemings and fathered children with her and enslaved those children. And that is not something that is brought to the forefront of Hamilton. In fact, Sally is a minor character and it's kind of played off as cute. Uh, they sort of flirtatious relationship. So I think there, there is some water there where I'm like, I, I wonder if this could have been handled a little bit better, but Jefferson is called out for, uh, for his, um, Uh, slave owning, and Washington is mostly let off the hook, and then Hamilton is portrayed as a staunch abolitionist, which is not particularly historical. He was a member of some abolitionist societies, and he did espouse abolitionist ideals in some spaces, just as Jefferson did, but he also was uh, trading slaves for his father-in-law, and he was not Um, you know, a a major freedom fighter uh, for that movement. None of these men were. None of these men really, truly wanted to abolish slavery, even if they found the institution abhorrent. Uh, And that's something that you'll see throughout American history. Even Lincoln, uh, you know, who, who signed the Emancipation Proclamation, did not uh, do so because he believed that black people were equal to white people. He just, uh, he abhorred the institution of slavery of owning people.
1: And he um, wanted to win a war and he
0: wanted to win a war.
1: And if you took away the slave labor from the Confederates, you, lo- you you have a better chance of winning the war.
0: Yeah. Uh, so this is just such a lengthy and complicated history. Um, and I, I do think there are areas where Hamilton is, is, um, intentionally misrepresenting the past in order to make its hero a little bit more sympathetic. Um, but I'm also not here for, you know, criticizing minorities on how they reclaim their own history of oppression. Um, and so that's a, that's a space where I'm like, yeah, I, I wish it had been handled with a little bit more delicacy and a little bit more complexity, but like there's a reason that I'm not telling this story. There's a reason that Hamilton is told through the voice that it is. And I think that in itself, uh, the inclusion of hip hop, the casting of minority actors, um, and and having those actors reclaim these founding fathers is a powerful statement on slavery and racism and oppression uh, in this country.
1: Yeah, there's also a really good bit where Christopher Jackson, who plays Washington, explains an acting decision that he made at the very end, the last musical number, um, you know, Eliza says she raised funds for the the Washington monument. And Christopher Jackson is in the background playing Washington saying, you know, she tells my story looking sad and he bows.
0: Yeah. As she's saying, I, I speak out against slavery. You Hamilton could have done so much more if you only had time. And Christopher Jackson shows this like he hangs his head in shame
1: because he didn't do enough um, to end slavery in his time. And, you know, a historian will look at a time and they, they want to investigate the causes and consequences of events so they can understand the human condition better. A historian's not engaged with moralizing the past. Though moral lessons can be learned from history and should be learned from history, understanding the history is more important than moralizing it meaning that if you look back and you say, I want to understand why Joseph Stalin came to power, what Joseph Stalin did with that power, and how Joseph Stalin used power to shape the modern uh, world, you will have to reconcile with the fact that he slaughtered millions of his own citizens. And while that, you can say, is morally abhorrent, the question isn't, I need to understand Joseph Stalin to expose how immoral he was. That makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You take it as given that someone who murders millions of people is an immoral person. And similar to the issue of slavery. So if you want to understand George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Alexander Hamilton, you ask who they were, the causes and consequences, what they did, what we can learn, and you can always, knowing that, yeah, slavery is immoral. As far as we know, Hamilton wasn't a slave owner, but his father-in-law was and in administering his father's affairs cuz Hamilton was very capable he bought and sold slaves for his father-in-law and that's pretty awful you know none yeah, 100% <laughs> i i have a sort of historical metaphor i'd like to give one of the questions is how did slavery exist and exist for so long how was it that people like washington jefferson and hamilton could both privately and publicly condemn slavery, yet participate, benefit in, and sell slaves, and then even support laws and legislation that enshrined slavery, most notably the Three-Fifths Compromise in the Constitution, and also do other things that help perpetuate slaves. After the Battle of Yorktown, there was a contingent of ex-slave British soldiers. The British in order to help defeat the American colonies, said any slave who abandons their slave and fights for the British after the war will be given freedom. So a lot of slaves flocked to the British in the hopes that they could win their freedom by fighting for the British. After the Battle of Yorktown, a bunch of these ex-slaves were caught, were captured, and under Washington's orders, returned to their slave owners. Yet, if you read Washington's letters, he condemned slavery and thought it was abhorrent. Washington also commanded the only integrated, racially integrated army until Vietnam. So from the Revolutionary War, from the end of the Revolutionary War until Vietnam, every single American army was segregated on racial lines.
0: God, that's insane.
1: And Washington commanded an integrated army and wrote extensively in his letters that the prowess of the minorities, and be they Native Americans or um, African Americans, ex-slaves, the military prowess was equal. What made a good soldier was discipline, training, and bravery, not race. Admitting that there's no reason to assume white troops are superior to black and brown troops. So how was it that individuals such as Washington Jefferson Jefferson introduced the first abolitionist bill in American history before the Revolutionary War. He fought to make slavery illegal in colonial Virginia, yet has a plantation and has no problems buying and selling his children. And I think, and I don't say this as a one-to-one narrative, but it's hard for us now to reconcile these hypocrisies and these moral inconsistencies. But there is an issue that we live with now that really resonates in moral spirit to slavery. This is not to say they're morally equivalent, that one is better or worse. After all, bad things don't need to be in a hierarchy. Bad things are bad things. Immoral things are immoral things. Arguing which which thing that causes pain and suffering is worse is a place of privilege because the person suffering on it doesn't care. They are still suffering. Um, And that's global warming. We have a system right now of energy that is causing immense suffering in the world. Generally speaking, everybody agrees that it's happening. Even those in power, there are a small group of people that are benefiting greatly on perpetuating this unjust system that's causing human suffering. And that generates immense amount of wealth for these small people. That immense amount of wealth is able to get its hand into politics to have politicians perpetuating this system of wealth. And most people agree that it's a problem, but don't do much about it. They live within this system and they say, yeah, you know, global warming's bad. We should really get to it. It's on my list of issues, but it's down on the lower end. Meanwhile, hurricanes, famines, all of these terrible things that we're seeing because of global climate change are happening right before our eyes just as in all of the terrible things that were happening in slavery were happening right in front of their eyes. People in power can pri- can privately say, this is really messed up. We really need to do something about it, but I'm also going to deregulate the energy companies with my power because I recognize that I am willing to barter this system for other things that I want to get in return and we ultimately live in a world where we recognize global climate change is real and we recognize the damage that it's done, but we're paralyzed to really do much about it.
0: And it disproportionately affects black and brown communities and communities uh, in poverty uh, and and other countries as well that we don't think about. Uh, we, we, we don't think about the, the countries that are harmed by the pollution that places like America and China participate in.
1: And slavery um, was an international yeah. system that was damning and hurting people all over the planet to the benefit of a small few who wielded immense authority over the political process to make it impossible to change. And one of the tough parts about a democratic society is you can only do what's possible in the moment. And yes, Washington should have done more. Yes. Hamilton should have done more. Yes. Everyone who thought and knew and believed slavery was wrong should have done more and not enough was done. And that is a fact. And when we're trying to reconcile the living within a system built on slavery and having not really grappled with what that means and corrected the harm that that's done and having that system casting such a huge shadow over our human affairs and our, our American affairs and politics. It is totally understandable when people fighting the hardest to change that system, when people who are living under the thumb of that system, when people are having their freedom and their liberties and their right to life being stripped from them because of that system, to look at a piece of artwork and say, hold on. You didn't really grapple with this in a way that's meaningful to me in my experience now. And I think that's a fair criticism, one that I totally agree with. But we do have to take the broader lessons of when we see injustices, how hard are we willing to fight to correct them? Are we using everything within our personal power to correct them? And rather than saying, yeah, you know, I know this system's bad and it's really messed up. And yeah, people in power really got to get to it. They really got to do something about it. Meanwhile, I'm going to go about my life. That's not how change happens. It's not how we correct injustices in a democratic society. We have to mobilize together to fix the problems because the people in power are only going to be as incentivized to change the problems as we apply pressure onto them.
0: And we do that by coalition building. You know, We do that by recognizing uh, that your struggle is my struggle, that our struggles are intertwined, uh, that racial justice, social justice, environmental justice, economic justice, all of these things are deeply, deeply and inextricably connected in our society. Uh, and that we need to be uh, assuming each other's suffering and assuming each other's struggles in order to fight for each other and fight as a collective. You know, by way of a final thought here on Hamilton, uh, if there's more you want to say, I'll certainly turn the, the mic over to you again. But uh, just something I was thinking about with the medium me, the medium of theater um, and, and why it's the most uh, appropriate way to communicate the story of Hamilton uh, is a, a sort of metaphor for the theatrical experience, the experience of making a play. Uh, it's often done uh, in the contemporary world through workshop, Uh, You know, you might take a retreat with yourself or with you and a collaborator and shut yourself up in a room for days and write my shot. Um, Or you might take two years to write my shot and keep changing the lyrics. And then you might assemble a cast and that cast might change before you actually open your doors, but you're gonna work on it every single day for hours and hours at a time. And there's gonna be a whole bunch of people building you a set And composing your orchestrations. And you're gonna have a director and you're gonna have producers and this massive, massive group of people. And you finally get ready to open. And then once you open, you still have to do it every day. You still have to show up to work and do the show every day, even though you're done rehearsing. And when you have a show like Hamilton that's gonna run for a thousand years, (laughs) like you need to keep bringing in new actors and those new actors are a new generation who need to rehearse that play and learn the parts and bring something new to it. And it is very much like, you know, the creation of, of a nation. It is very much like the creation of a society, you know, getting, getting the people that can work together together and working every single day to keep on bringing this story to life and to keep on improving this story and making it more accessible to more and more people.
1: Totally agree. I have a lot more that I wanted to say. Oh my God.
0: Right. (laughs) But I just think,
1: I think it's time to, to wrap it. I adore Hamilton. Thank you for everyone for listening as always. Make sure you're taking care of yourself. Make sure you're staying safe. Keep fighting the good fight. The world is wide enough, my friends, and until next time...
0: Raise a glass to freedom.
1: Be kind.